up on today's show, 46% of Canadians say they sympathize with the trucker convoys and the frustration that they're feeling, but that doesn't mean they necessarily agree with their tactics. We're moving to a different phase of this pandemic, more endemic, and restrictions are coming off, like it or not, and some people don't like it. And the situation in Ukraine gets more and more perilous by the hour, it seems. So, state of emergency now declared in the province of Ontario. Fines of up to $100,000, a year in jail for non-compliance, and also talking about maybe pulling personal and commercial licenses of truckers who carry on with whatever it is they're carrying on with. How do you feel about what's going on in our country? There's some new polling out from Ipsos um, that shows, well, we're split, <laughs> like we are on many, many things. And it actually says that less than half, just less than half of Canadians say they may not agree with everything that these truckers are up to, but they understand the frustration. And I think I find myself in that group. Let's check with Daryl Bricker now. Daryl, of course, is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Shay. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, that's the number that sort of stood out to me. 46% of Canadians say, I may not agree with everything these truckers are doing, but you know what? I feel a sense of sympathy with their frustration levels. Yeah, the way I would, uh, and this this applies particularly since uh, we're on the prairies, a particularly great analogy for the prairies. Uh, imagine big storm clouds on the horizon, big thunder rollers coming in, and you can see the electricity kind of flashing around yeah. in the in the uh, in, in the clouds, and it's like this thing has become like a lightning rod. It's just the, the electricity of that frustration is just discharging on this. Now, what the shape of the rod is or what the rod's really about or who the people are or anything, not really as relevant as the fact that somebody is expressing that they're frustrated, and that's how the Canadian population, at least half of us, are feeling right now. Yeah, I mean, that frust- how could you not be? I'm surprised, to be honest with you, Daryl, that it's not higher. Now, not saying that more people agree with the convoy. I think, you know, I'm not surprised that a lot of people don't have 100% agreement with that, but that frustration... With the position we find ourselves in after two years, I, I think most people are frustrated. Yeah, I think if we would have asked it just, are you frustrated, like, describe your current <laughs> mood, are you frustrated, it would be higher. The, the minute that you enter the, 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 the convoy in here as the, the thing that you're trying to compare to, obviously you're going to lose a whole bunch of people. But the surprising finding to me was, you know, there was a lot of polls out recently saying, you know, only 30% of Canadians support the truckers. Well, they're asking the wrong question. This isn't about whether you support or oppose the truckers. It's whether or not what they're doing, that, that, that sense of, of, of frustration, does that resonate with you, or just you're just out of touch with the public mood? And what this is showing is that for around half of us, yeah, it's it's resonating with us. Interesting the way it breaks down among ages. Hey, I mean, younger people seem to be more supportive. Yeah, that's the stuff that really pops out of this for me. It's it's that it's not just about partisanship, although there's an element of that. It's not just about regions, although there's an element of that. It's but when you look at age, yeah, and you look at class. Like whether you're an affluent person or not, or whether you're a young person or you're an older person. I mean, among people 18 to 34, that frustration, resonance with that frustration question, agreement with it, is 61, not 46. Yeah, exactly. But when you talk about, okay, so the frustration, yeah, there's, there's a lot of understanding, a lot of sympathy, you know, roughly half. What happens when you talk about, okay, but how is it being handled? How many people are on board with the way it's being, you know, dealt with by these Again. Again, very divided. I mean, you know, there's a whole group of people in the media, including, you know, former, you know, Bank of Canada presidents and and others who are out there saying, you know, this is an insurrection and we should, it's a fundamental challenge to our government. Well, about half of us think so. Yeah. So the other half don't. So, oh, you know, not really. I mean, got the mood wrong on that one. And then the idea that the prime minister shouldn't be talking to them and that he's absolutely right to say, you know, 
tin hat crowd and, uh, you know, racist and misogynist and all yeah. the rest of it. Only, only about half of people agree with them on that. So uh, any question you want to ask, it's, you know, the, the minimum is usually 40 on the, um, on, on the, uh, the, the support for the, the, not necessarily for the truckers, but what's going on, yeah. and about 60 usually on the other side. But on those questions of, is this an attack on our democracy? Very divided, 50-50. And do you support what the prime minister, his position of not talking to them? Very divided on that as well. Yeah, and I think that, that makes sense. You know, I mean, I think they had their manifesto or whatever, but I don't think anybody took that seriously. So an attack on democracy, maybe that never got off the ground. But it's kind of interesting. What are they saying in terms of, you know, whether he should sit down and talk to them? I mean, I guess a lot of people say we don't negotiate with terrorists, or at least that's the line you see bandied about, right? Yeah, right now they're not in the terrorist category. No. Um, so 47% say, hey, maybe it's at least worth worth having sure. a conversation, which suggests that this is something different going on here. And, you know, the mistake that the people on the other side of this, where they kind of embrace the truckers and all of their, and all of their category, that's a you know, not quite resonant with public opinion either, because only about 24% of us, given the fact that, you know, they've displayed certain levels of intolerance about, you know, uh, racial backgrounds or, you know, those, the support drops to like 24%. 24% still a quarter of Canadian adults. I mean, that's a lot of people, but um, it's much lower than 46. So 24% support the convoys and the blockades? Yeah, regardless, regardless. Regardless of what happens. Okay. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Interesting stuff. Daryl, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. That's Daryl Bricker. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. I'm really interested to see how this shapes up. Now, first of all, we talk about Alberta all the time, and ever since the province announced the end of the restriction exemption program earlier this week, and the fact that pretty much all public health measures are going to be gone within a couple of weeks, there's been just a hue and cry from some corners where, no, 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 we can't do it. It's too soon. It's too early. And and maybe it is. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I do think it's time to start having these conversations. And it's not just Alberta. It's happening everywhere. As COVID infection rates fall nationwide, 11 states have announced they're ending mask mandates, whether it's inside businesses or inside schools. States like New York and California allowing their indoor mask mandates to expire, but keeping masks on in schools for now. Smaller states like Delaware and Rhode Island also dropping indoor mask mandates, but will wait until next month to drop them in schools. Oregon keeping all masking requirements till the end of March. Still, the CDC continues to recommend masks be worn in areas of substantial or high transmission and in educational settings. Derek Dennis, ABC News. So there you go. I mean, just state after state after state after state announcing changes and moving out of all the restrictions and mandates that we've had and getting back to what we call, whatever you want to call it, living with COVID, endemic stage, back to normal, blah, blah, blah. You've heard a million different terms for it. Um... And for a lot of us, and for many, many people, it's like, yes, finally, we're ready to go. I'm triple vax, double vax, whatever the case may be, whatever your situation is, you're ready for this to happen. But it's not like that for everybody. For some people, it's actually pretty scary because they're in a different position or they just feel differently about this. And that's going to be a conversation we need to have in the coming days and weeks. Joining us to help us try and get some understanding, we have Steve Jordans, who is a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, great to be with you. Now, before we get to some of the more intense reactions, and we'll walk through those in a minute, but for all of us, this is going to be an adjustment, right? I mean, there'll be excitement for some, there's going to be apprehension for some, but regardless, it's an adjustment. Well, you know, I've I've been out there arguing that for the vast majority of us, the ones that really have just felt frustration and annoyance and all that, 
it's going to be very welcome. It's going to be a quicker and easier transition than we think. I've been calling it the great snapback, that because we are just social creatures at our core, the way we lived before the pandemic was our natural way to live. And we've literally been inhibiting that for two years. Our, Our frontal lobes have been saying, no, can't do that. No, can't do that. And yeah, we're tired, we're exhausted. And for many of us, when we find ourselves back in those old locations, it's going to feel like a warm blanket and we're just going to really kind of feel good. But as you say, that's not the case for everyone. Um, yeah, I'm just some people, and you know what? It's understandable. I mean, I think we've we've talked about it throughout the course of this entire pandemic, Doc, that we need to be aware of the fact that not everybody's in the same position and everybody has their own consideration. And that's going to be the same thing here, right? Yeah, I, I always loved that phrase that was around for a while, that we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is absolutely true. And, and psychologically, a critical line is crossed for those people who felt real mortal fear from, from yeah. this virus. You know, maybe their own health situation, maybe bringing it back to somebody in their family. When, it, when our brain starts to feel that sort of existential fear, it kicks in some very primitive mechanisms that kind of bind those things that scare us with that strong emotion state. And so for a lot of those people, you know, coming around crowds again or unmasked people or whatnot could instantly kind of push them into a a panic attack kind of mode or at least something close to that. How does that get assuaged over time? Is it just a matter of you're going to do it a couple of times and then recognize that, hey, it went okay? It, it depends on how severe that fear feeling was. Yeah. So, so we know the extreme case of this, we call it PTSD. Um, and, and we know that PTSD is a major problem and, and a, a real challenge clinically to deal with. There are approaches. Um, you know, there's good news on the PTSD front. But this probably for most people won't be quite that extreme. But they're really going to have to make a decision at some point. Is, is this really negatively impacting my life? Is this causing problems for me? And, and if it is, in that case, those people should consider seeking some therapy. There are good therapies to help people deal with what we call emotional disorders, which is what this would be. Um, and, and so they should know that as well. But yeah, if you can try a gradual you know, reintroduction, and if, it, if slowly you feel more and more comfortable with it, that's great. But if you're just feeling like, no, this is just making me terrified, it's time to talk to somebody. Um, now, I, I, I'm no psychologist, but I've talked to many of you. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's that human beings hate uncertainty. We don't yes. like not knowing. Um, and yeah. it seems to me we're at a point now coming out of the, I mean, as I talked about before I got to you, um, there's all kinds of different states that are doing it. But then the CDC says, don't remove masks, keep masks on. Some provinces are saying we're going ahead. Others are saying we aren't. It's, it's, it's choose your own expert at this point, Steve. It really seems like you can find anybody to support any cause that you want. How unsettling is that and how much more difficult does that make this? It really brings it down to the emotional level then. So I often like to argue that we're, we're kind of two people in one. We're this primitive, emotional, instinctual person. That's our limbic system, the deepest, oldest part of our brain. And then we have the frontal lobes, which is the newest kid on the block. The frontal lobes is where we do all our rational thinking and our strategizing and all that kind of stuff. And when we get all this mixed data like this, um, the frontal lobes sort of as you say, it can kind of grab whatever message it wants. You know, we really, like in times of danger, we need consistent messages that really kind of give us a sense of, of the reality out there. And when it's nice and consistent, our frontal lobes can say, okay, it's dangerous, I know you want to do things, but I'm not going to let you. As soon as that message becomes wishy-washy and inconsistent, then the emotional system takes charge. And, and those people who just are hungry to get out there will get out there, you know, unmasked and et cetera. And those people who are really fearful 
won't. Um, and so, yeah, that's the problem is that we get ruled a little bit more by our emotions when there isn't a consistent message. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, like, is it is it helpful to say, hey, well, because I've heard from people who say things like, you know, uh, there was a story recently, someone who was immunosuppressed or whatever, and, I, and yeah. my wife is, so I, I have an understanding yep. on how that works. Um, but yep. they're saying, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And I'm thinking, well, you're in your mid-50s. What did you do for the 50 years before the pandemic when there were virus? I mean, we have, it's not like this is a completely novel situation. We do have strategies. It seems like we've been so locked into these kind of reactions that we've had that for some people, it's hard to remember that we've been here before with some of these things, right? Yeah. Well, w- when those sort of emotional reactions kick in, they often rule. Um, yeah. They just, so, so when anybody's emotional, we all know this, you know, when we have a, a disagreement with our spouse or, or whatever, and, and we're all getting emotional, the logic and rationality of stuff goes out the windows. We say stupid things that we don't mean, yeah. we, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, when people are feeling those emotional reactions, our, our temptation is often to, to try to rationalize with them. But it's just this, but it's just that. Rather than really the better approach is to shut up and listen to them, to, to really let them tell us how they're feeling, you know, kind of play like a reporter, kind of like you are right now, um, you know, kind of draw their, their story out of them, draw their feelings out of them, let them explore it a little bit, because that's what they're in the middle of right at, at that time is, is an emotional situation. Yeah. And they kind of have to explore that and get comfortable with that before they can start going to that rational side again. And patience, Steve, right? I mean, understand yeah. that everybody's at a different place here and just be patient. Yeah, we really have to realize, you know, we're a bunch of human beings who react to this stuff in different ways. And that, at our core, we are all the same. And, and we have to just treat each other like human beings, respect the fact that we've come to different places, and, and just embrace that and say, that's cool. I, you know, when you're ready yeah. to, to maybe meet me for, for coffee, I can't wait for that day. Yep. So I'm ready when you are, but you tell me. Um, you know, that sort of approach is really powerful now, I think. Yeah, exactly. Just give everybody a little bit of room to handle yeah. this their own way. Steve, thanks so much. I really appreciate the insight. No problem. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That is Steve Jordans, who is a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. And I think, like I say, this is going to be the new conversation that we're having uh, soon. Because, like it or not, and I know some people agree and some people don't, this is the way we seem to be headed right now, okay? Um, I mean, you just take a look at where restrictions are being lifted, mandates are being changed, and it's happening all over the place right now. Continuing to draw down our our embassy, uh, we uh, uh, will continue that process. Uh, and we've also been very clear that um, any uh, American citizens who remain in Ukraine should leave now. That's U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken this morning saying that uh, the U.S. feels Russia could invade Ukraine during the current Beijing Olympics, uh, and any. Americans that are still in that country should leave while they still can. Similar messaging was sent to Canadians in the country not that long ago. He didn't give reasons behind the latest security alert, but uh, that's the message. If you want to get out, do it while you still can. Global Affairs Canada yesterday updated their travel advisory to Ukraine, urging Canadians to avoid all travel to Ukraine due to the ongoing Russian threats and the risk of armed conflict and advising anyone already there to leave. Well, commercial means are still available. So the threat of war in Eastern Europe remains a very distinct possibility. Um, we're now several weeks into this heightened tension following the buildup of Russian troops. Now, to this point, it's been a full-on effort by the West to avert a crisis with uh, threats of crippling economic sanctions, um, lots of diplomacy, but 
clearly, as we see this morning, uh, nothing has been resolved. So let's talk about this situation. We're going to chat with Thomas Hughes. Uh, Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International and Defence Policy at Queen's University in Ontario. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. So, I mean, there's been all kinds of work. There's been all kinds of talk. But just with the latest developments this morning and what we're hearing from the U.S. and from Canada over the past two days, we're still on the brink of a potential conflict in Eastern Europe, right? Absolutely. It's, it, it really is troubling. And the fact that we're at this point in 2022 is is extremely problematic. Um, now, you recently did a piece with Conversation talking about how this is sort of a make or break almost for NATO and, you know, in the West. I mean, we've got sort of this intractable position that we've been on for a couple of weeks now. Just why is it so important for NATO that this doesn't become a full-blown conflict? It's huge. I think there are two points that are, that are really significant in here. The first is, as you pointed out just before, that lots of NATO members have been um, very... Uh, very strong in their condemnation of Russian actions. They've suggested that the uh, invasion of Ukraine or any action against Ukraine would be tremendously uh, difficult. Uh, It would be something that NATO just could not accept. If Russia goes through with that invasion anyway, or even if it's not an invasion, even if they conduct some sort of actions that that harm Ukraine short of war, it is a very public demonstration that they don't fully respect NATO's strength or, or indeed NATO's uh, ability and willingness um, to continue to hold those sorts of red lines. So NATO is really waiting there, I think, um, for Russia's next step. And if it doesn't respond appropriately, it, it's going to be difficult. The other challenge, of course, within that is that whilst NATO has always done a, a very good job of presenting a coherent public front, yeah. As you might imagine, within any sort of organization like that, you have all sorts of conversations going on about priorities uh, and funding and where NATO should be concentrating its resources. So um, this conflict in this particular region of Russia uh, requires some difficult conversations uh, within NATO uh, about where they go from from here as an alliance. And finally, uh, as a perhaps um, deeper point uh, as part of this conflict, If there is this uh, invasion of Ukraine or action uh, against Ukraine, it really starts to undermine the system of rules that have been put in place to try and prevent this sort of action happening. And without those rules in place, it becomes very difficult for NATO to understand how to operate in this security environment. Okay, so let's go into those uh, again, because I wanted to ask you, like, we always talk about NATO. NATO. NATO says Mm -hmm. this. NATO does that. NATO says this. It's not unanimous, right? There's a lot of differing positions within NATO as to what the approach should be here. Absolutely. And I think you you do very well to to highlight um, that aspect of the discussion. The other important part here, of course, is that Ukraine is not a NATO member. So if... You know, if, if Russia invaded a NATO member, I think it's, it's highly implausible that it occurred. But if they, if they did, then you have NATO's Article 5, which means that NATO will come together and respond to that. If Russia uh, invades Ukraine, well, there's, there's no real system in place. There's no mechanism by which everyone is on the same page necessarily. And we know within uh, NATO, there are countries with very different relationships with Russia. 
and the impact of NATO's action against Russia will or could also change their bilateral relationship. So they have to be very cautious in there. And when you look at at countries that, that do border Russia, Poland, Estonia and the like, those countries, for them, it, it is a very real possibility of a Russian invasion. We can say that that is implausible, and it certainly is. But for them, it is a real possibility. Whereas NATO members, say, in, in southern Europe, look at their own security situation and perhaps see a threat from a slightly different direction, whether that's uh, terrorist threats coming through North Africa or the like. So it is a real challenge for, for NATO to coordinate its activities around Ukraine. Um, But as I say, I think so far they've done a truly exceptional job of of representing a a very strong consolidated front. And the other one I want to ask you, uh, as you mentioned there, is the end game. What what NATO's Mm -hmm. legitimate options are, because as you say, um, there's either you you continue to push and push and push until um, Russia backs down or you get conflict Mm -hmm. or you have the choice of coming up with some concessions. Either way, Something has to happen for this to change. What are NATO's options? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, there, there are an awful lot of options. If I could tell you the, the right option, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. I think it's an incredibly difficult um, balancing act for NATO. I think, first and foremost, uh, NATO has to continue to represent a united... Oh, Thomas. Oh, we lost Thomas. Sarah will work her magic, and hopefully we get him back. In the meantime, though, Sarah, let's take a quick break while you do that, and then we'll be able to chat with him when we come back right after this. All right, so we're talking about the situation in Eastern Europe and the troop buildup um, along the border with Ukraine and and what might happen there. Chatting with Thomas Hughes uh, before we got disconnected. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International and Defence Policy at Queen's University, Ontario. Thomas, uh, thanks for hanging on for a second. Glad we got you back. No, no problem at all. Vagaries of modern technology and all that. <laughs> no kidding, right? Uh, so we were discussing what options are, are legitimately available to NATO. And as I said, you know, it seems like they're sort of stuck between, okay, either we, we continue to push our hard line and almost, you know, dare Russia to lure us into conflict, or they have to make some concessions to try and avoid it that way. Is there anything else on the table? I mean, what are the options NATO has? So I think start to answer this question, the easiest point is to say what, what option is, is not available to NATO. Uh, and that option is, that is not available is that NATO backs down from its support of its uh, northern yeah. and eastern members. Uh, that is extremely important um, if NATO is going to continue as a, as a united alliance. In terms of what it can offer uh, in Russia in return, I think that the face-saving approach here um, requires unfortunately requires Ukraine um, to be part of that conversation as well. This is not just a conflict between NATO and Russia. As we talked about, there is uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Yeah. So Ukraine is, has to be part of that, that conversation. So NATO has to be talking to Ukraine. And I think the key aspect here is going to be uh, at least some sort of uh, concession about how troops are distributed within Europe and um, the political status uh, of Ukraine, uh, particularly whether it it leans more towards Russia or or towards Europe. Those are essentially concessions, though, right? I mean, that's kind of what Russia's asking for. Yes, uh, it is, unfortunately. um, But I think it is about self-determination for Ukraine, and it's supporting that self-determination. I think that's an opportunity to save face for both sides. But I think one of the key conversations in here is the the simple reality, as I touched on before, that 
Russia and NATO are, are not going to back down in terms of numbers of troops and positioning of troops uh, around Europe. It, that's just part of how they're behaving at the moment. So the question then is, what can be put in place to ensure that those troop dispositions are not seen as the threat? We have both Russia and NATO saying that our troops are not intending to invade yeah. anywhere, that they're purely for defence. And we have had a system of uh, what's been called confidence-building measures in Europe for, for a number of years. They haven't been updated recently, and I think they really need to be looked at uh, again. We need to have transparency uh, in Europe. We need to have uh, a common understanding of what the intent is of all parties within that. Um, last one, and then I'll let you go. Um, mm-hmm. We keep talking about this, you know, in terms of troops and in terms of war. Um, we've mm-hmm. already got warnings in Canada from our, our cyber agencies saying, you know what, you need to yeah. be aware that we could have cyber attacks. I mean, there could be unconventional war that's already happening. I mean, how does that fit into this and complicate the equation? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. And it, it complicates it enormously. And I think it also hits the nail on the head of, of the way in which we understand warfare has to change. Um, competition and conflict is not what it was during the Cold War. And in reality, I think it's extremely unlikely that we see Soviet-style thousands of Russian tanks streaming down the streets of Kiev. It, it just doesn't seem like a possibility. However, if Russia's intent is to have a, a degree of political control in Ukraine, then certainly um, they could accomplish that uh, through other other means. Misinformation is another classic approach yeah. to doing that. How could they undermine the, the Ukrainian government, have somebody uh, installed or voted into power in Ukraine who does lean more towards Russia? And again, that, that brings up a really important question, not just for NATO, but for the Canadian government and, and beyond, is having a really clear and coherent idea about how to respond to these sorts of things. Because at the moment, we haven't quite caught up to that. We understand that they're a threat. We understand that they occur, but we don't fully understand how we are supposed to respond to that. And that comes back to the rules that I mentioned earlier. When you've got a very clear set of rules for the game, everyone knows how to play it, if you like. Everyone knows what the costs and benefits are. And what we're seeing potentially with that hybrid or gray zone warfare, however you want to to describe that, is a situation where um, we need to rethink response and what is appropriate. So it's all in transition, it's all in flux, and this is all happening as that is happening. So uh, I guess we just wait and see how this may go, right? Uh, for us, certainly. Um, I hope that for, for those who have decision-making authority, they are not just waiting and seeing, um, that there are continued efforts going on. I'm sure there are. Fortunately, there are an awful lot of smart people who are, who are involved in, in trying to de-escalate there. Uh, and I think in the end, it is in nobody's interests, really, to have uh, a full-scale war. And even below that, war is inherently uncertain. Um, and again, uh, there's no way that I can predict what yeah, exactly. Putin is going to do. But um, I, I think we need to, to continue talking, and hopefully, steadily, slowly, tensions will start to decrease. Uh, let's hope so. Thomas, thank you so much. Great insight. Really appreciate you joining us today. Not at all. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. That is Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University in Ontario. And as I started the interview, I told you about the latest developments on that front, and uh, they're continuing to seem to get uh, more and more tense. U.S. saying today that Russia could attack during the Olympics, which are, I think they're going for a week now, right? Is it a week? It's got to be. Um, and uh, telling all of their... 
um, citizens to get out of Ukraine while you still can, which echoes what the Canadian government told all Canadians still in Ukraine yesterday. Get out while commercial means are still available. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.